Hello, everybody. You're about to experience my interview with Dean McAwee. Now, Dean is the Director of Global E-Commerce Collaboration over at Stanley Black & Decker. He is a B2B e-commerce expert. We had a fantastic conversation about how Stanley Black & Decker looks at the world through the lens of B2B, how he's helped to build up B2B capability teams and technology over at Stanley Black & Decker and where his sense is at in regards to global B2B e-commerce adoption. Welcome to B2B Commerce Corner. Commerce Corner is a sub-series of the e-commerce edge podcast discussing all things B2B commerce through the lens of agencies, consultants, merchants, and more. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I have someone here for you today to have a chat with that I've wanted to speak with for, I would say, probably at least a year now. We've been connected on LinkedIn, I think, for a few years now. So welcome to the podcast, Dean McAwee. Awesome to have you here, mate. Thanks, Jason. Thanks very much for having me here. Yeah, look, we, I've been following you for a long time, especially from a European e-commerce perspective. You are very well known. You speak at conferences. You're very visible on LinkedIn. You're really, you're a thought leader in the space. And for the last over two years, you've been director of global e-commerce collaboration, uh, working in the e-commerce space for Stanley Black and Decker. And look, you've just got this really eclectic background working in e-com, in tech, and I think you've got a really unique perspective and that's reflected in your content. And that's really why I wanted to have a conversation with you, mate. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I've had quite an interesting journey, Jason. I think it's a case of, you know, I, I've done a lot of commercial strategy in my career. I've done a lot of analytics. And at the time that I did the analytics, it was, this stuff's going to change the world. And then I realized as I got deeper and deeper into e-commerce, everything's analytics anyway. So. It's all coming together, I think, at the sort of right time to be able to really translate business needs into what e-commerce does and back it up by a great date. And you've, I think you also have moved into more the B2B e-commerce space at just the time. Your timing couldn't have been more perfect. You were with Kellogg's as well, which, of course, is a, a famous FMCG manufacturer of foods integrated commercial lead e-commerce for Europe with them and now working on the B2B side, primarily on the B2B side with Stanley Black & Decker. Your timing couldn't really be more perfect, especially with COVID and that shining a light on a lot of manufacturing, distribution, brand that maybe they didn't necessarily have an e-commerce play at all, or if they did, it really wasn't a focus for the business. And then COVID came along and all the field sales reps had to stay home. And so really, I think it shone a spotlight on a lot of the big manufacturers that really were lagging really badly from an e-commerce perspective and just how far behind the B2C, D2C e-commerce space they really were. Yeah, absolutely. I think for us, you're exactly right. We transitioned to a business which was partly remote from a senior leadership point of view, but we're still sending a lot of people to our customers. We still want to do that. We just realized that there's a huge ability to transform a lot of that to online sales engagement. So we're looking at sales engagement, digital platforms, and we're looking at B2B platforms. And there's a good couple of things happening in that space. And I think you, before we went on air, you also mentioned that you really are pretty clear about how you break down your B2B customers and prospects into very clear cohorts around 
which ones might make good candidates to transition to e-commerce sales or try to encourage into the e-commerce channel versus those that really they still require or you would benefit massively from having a super high touch field sales rep, regular call cycle type of an engagement model. So can you talk us through what that looks like for you guys and how other brands that are B2B brands that maybe are just starting to do e-commerce for the first time, how your how the way you guys do it might be beneficial to them? I think if you look at it just in general about how do you service accounts and how do you go to market, there are accounts that do a lot of volume for you, the accounts that do a little bit of volume, there are accounts that do that require a low touch, and then the accounts that require a high touch. High touch is ones where you need to explain a lot more to them, mainly just to get them educated. It may be a specific vertical for us, which is quite quite a lot more technical. So if you look at some of the the really high-end tools we do, we're doing, we're calling on customers like Airbus in Europe. So that's a really high-touch account. You've got to go and really understand what those component manufacturers or those aeroplane manufacturers are actually doing with the tools. And you've got to spend a lot of time explaining to them. So that's an example of a high-touch account. And I think when you look at this, you have high-volume accounts that may have EDI, but then you still want to give them a high touch. And that's where things like B2B platforms come in. We see B2B platforms as very complementary to EDI. They, even if your large customers have a B2B platform, have an EDI connection with you, B2B really can supplement that or complement that and provide you an additional place to engage with those customers, give them additional bits of information and really move from a sort of transactional approach to really a sales engagement and demand generation approach. I think we sometimes think of demand generation in the eyes of D2C, but really it's in B2B as well. When you're a manufacturer like us, we have 200,000 SKUs, 200,000 individual stock keeping units. How do we show people all those? Nobody's walking around with a monster catalog anymore. So when you look at it, there's the ability to do that for the large accounts is given them a platform which they can look at the products and we can interact with them in various ways. For our lower touch accounts where it may not make sense for us to send a rep through all the time, he can't go on a sort of standard sales call and be there every single month. We'll take an order once every three to four months. It'll be a decent size order. But the platform then becomes a great opportunity for those guys to go and have a look, go and buy, buy there. I think there's also the other dynamic for businesses, and I think it's ourselves and a lot of other businesses, which is that you've got your sort of big chain retailers. So the likes of Home Depot, the likes of Lowe's, and there's counterparts around the world. There's the Kingfisher Group in Europe. And these are really big chain retailers where the catalog that they stock in store and online is quite standard. A lot of the other players want to see what businesses like us have because they want to differentiate themselves from those larger players. So that's where BDB platform can really play a fantastic role for some of those businesses, which may not be those big chain retailers, but are big businesses in their own right, and they want to differentiate themselves. And they can go and see what we have and then order it offline, sorry, online. And how do you guys think from a, I guess, from a GTM go-to-market perspective and even from an account management perspective, how do you guys start to think about how you will deal with 
those very different types of B2B customers that you have, i.e., you know, you've got the end users, the end B2B users of your tools. So you've got the, you've got the Airbuses of the world. You've got these other, you've got mechanics, you've got all sorts of different, you've got home builders, you've got all sorts of B2B end users of your tools that they're not going to resell the product. They're buying it as a business to use in their day-to-day operations. And then you've got wholesalers, you've got distributors, you've got, you've got the large retail chains like you were talking about. So you've got these quite distinct cohorts of B2B customers. And sometimes their needs are quite different, both from a ranging perspective, because oftentimes I'm guessing, I'm assuming you can validate this or not. I'm guessing that some of these large resellers, they're wanting some level of exclusivity across certain SKUs. They're wanting exclusive ranges. They're wanting custom products. They're wanting to be able to differentiate themselves through this limited catalog relationship, i.e., hey, I don't want my catalog that you're selling to me shown to Tom, Dick, and Harry that everybody can have access to. And so we have these layers of complexity in B2B in terms of custom price lists, custom catalogs, custom MOQs. We have all these complex layers, and they're oftentimes related to the type of B2B customer that is buying from us. And then, as you say, we've got different varying levels of maturity on the buy side as well. Some want EDI, some want punch outs, some want regular old garden variety, B2B, e-com. And so servicing these, especially for a business as large as yours, gets pretty complex pretty fast. It does. And so we look at it from a persona point of view. For those of you familiar with sort of D2C world, you look at personas and you'd understand who that is and who the who that shopper is on your D2C platform. It's very much that type of approach on B2B. You come up with an end user profile. Who's going to be the end user there? And normally we'll start with a description of who that company is, what do they do, what applications may they take from us, how many employees do they have? This is an interesting thing. If you're a sort of small business, you're sort of under 10 people buying from a company like us, there's probably only one person accessing the platform to purchase. As soon as you get over 50 50 chaps in a company or 50 employees, you're seeing mid-size, large-size companies. They might have a person buying from you. They may have somebody else approving that purchase. So then you've also got those sort of additional layers of employees and what that does to things like procurement cycles. Because if I sit there and I go and place the order, does somebody else have to approve it before we send it off? Employees is obviously a key one for us. That purchase decision maker. So is it that basically that end user who's going to use it? Your chap in the van, he comes around to fix your plumbing. He's going to make the decision. But in a mid-sized to large-sized construction company, there you're dealing with a procurement specialist. So this person is category-specific procurement, and they may be looking for additional information. So on the roadmaps that we have, how do we get all the certificates of conformity or all the the sort of legal requirements that these procurement companies want from businesses like ourselves and be able to put that on the platform so they can easily download and access it. And then one of the other big things that we look at is the average transaction value. Is it $500 to $600? Is it $40,000? Is it $100,000? Now, there there are quite a few layers there in terms of what they have. You look at that and then you say, what is their sort of purchase frequency? And then what do they care about? Because these guys all care about 
very different things. It may sound strange. If you're a small business and you're using products all the time is money, it's that classic thing. So faster delivery time is a very big purchase driver. Good product quality is a very big purchase driver. But as soon as you go to the sort of more specialist guys, it may be things like those certificates, those conformities, those things so that they're making sure that they're getting the right products before they buy. There's quite different end user segments with quite different needs and different layers about how they work. And when you guys started to dip your toes in the water of digital commerce full stop, and this may have actually even been pre your time with the company, but did the company start out with just EDI as being the only digital channel available and then slowly over time layer on things like punch out capability to interface with procurement systems and surface that catalog through procurement, procurement staff as well as the systems that they use? to generate things like POs digitally, et cetera. And then did you, was the la- kind of the last step to layer on true B2B e-com functionality? Was it a phased rollout or was it big bang? Hey, we're going to offer all of this all at once to everybody. No, it's definitely a phased rollout. EDI comes very quickly because your large companies demand it. So the likes of the Home Depot, Lowe's, those businesses for us would be a couple of billion dollars. They're going to want EDI and they're going to want it very quickly. The B2B platforms has followed, you're right, before I joined, we've had ones here for about 15, 16 years that have also gone through a series of evolutions. And that's a couple fold. One is out of necessity. So depending on how complex your market structure is, you may have not a lot of chains in, in the market. For example, if you look around the world, in markets like Brazil that we operate in, only 10% of our business goes through to large chain customers or large corporate customers. 90% is going to to small businesses and distributors that operate across countries like Brazil. Italy is another market for us. 75% of the business is to small mom and pop stores. So you can't send a rep to all of those guys because you'll go to somebody. So it's out of necessity that we've and wanting to get penetration in the market that we've adopted these platforms to be able to do it. And then I think as we've moved those on and transitioned them, it's become a way to enter markets with a selling approach that we realistically couldn't enter before. For example, we launched a B2B platform in India, India to try and just traverse the sheer size of India. We've got 1,200 distributors. How many reps do we need to be able to cover that area, just B2B and a B2B platform with an app specifically on that really helps in those kind of markets to access that market and get your products out there. So I think it's been really EDI into first stage platforms, which I would consider those first stage platforms really transactional. You're not really trying to do too much demand generation. You're not getting into additional information that you can provide to your customers there and then transition that from all the paper-based stuff you have. So those are the second generation platforms where we're now starting to do a bit of demand generation. And then I've got my eyes on the sort of third level of, of B2B, which is where we're thinking about how does it solve some more complex problems or complex opportunities that we have? And how do you use it to solve and expand your business even more? You call out some really amazing points there, and I want to address just one of them in particular, which is that 
we oftentimes, as maybe Westerners or maybe white males in our case, yeah. and because of the places where we've grown up, you've grown up in, in Europe, I grew up in the United States and then transitioned to New Zealand and spent almost 30 years there. Those markets, for the most part, are extremely mature markets. And as a result of that, there is oftentimes very large, very entrenched big box retailers in the case of the products that you sell, the Lowe's, the Home Depot's, and some of the other, there's the, there's the, there's several other very large chains that operate in ANZ, MITRE 10, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have these very large dominant 800 pound gorillas. But when you transition to, you made specific mention of Brazil, but Mexico, what I've discovered is, is a very similar market or what I would say more broadly, LATAM operates in a very different way specifically Mexico, just there's not a lot of big box retailers here. They just don't exist. There are thousands and thousands of single shop or maybe two or three shop retailers here that service the market more broadly on a local community type of basis. Mexicans just, they just don't seem, they seem to be very community-minded. And that is, seems to be, that comes down to, I think, the Roman, if we want to get down to the nitty-gritty of it, it probably comes down to the Roman Catholic background and the very strong family unit, very strong community focus, very strong family focus. And therefore, they buy off of their local friends, family, and community as opposed to traveling 30 minutes to go to a big box store. It's just not massive in the culture here. And as you rightly point out, you have to be market relevant. If you're gonna if you're gonna do B two B in a new market, you have to really research that market, and you have to understand how that market operates to be relevant in that market and provide the digital services that are relevant in that space, as opposed to trying to cookie cutter it. Say, for example, take your model in Europe or take your model from the United States and transfer that to LATAM. There isn't necessarily a one to one model that works in those markets. No, absolutely. And just a correction: I moved to Europe. I spent most of my life a good 40 odd years growing up in south africa so I, i'm from a market which is probably in between development from really an early stage market in europe so i've had a very interesting sort of background of both really less developed markets than you know really developed markets and i think one of the stats that i recently saw on this was looking and saying was where do these b2b buyers start their purchase journey and how does that differ by country and what was hugely interesting in the stat, it was done by Wonderman Thompson, I think they did a B2B shopper report. And the stats were quite interesting in, the, in that because in markets like India, China, South Africa, Brazil, Mexico, some of those B2B buyers are starting their purchase journeys online. Okay? There's no reps, no, no structured sales organizations with national account managers and stuff calling on them. So they start looking for what they need online first, rather than offline. And the numbers are quite interesting. I think India was one of the highest where 90% of those, the, those respondents in the report said that they are shopping online as a B2B purchase journey. In the US, it was up around 59 and the UK was around 58, 55. So that's quite interesting based on where, they, where that sort of those B2B buyers shop and then the implications for where you need platforms and the role that they play. But you're right, it's very much different layers of organizations in different markets. Something like Brazil, Mexico, there might be distributors and then sub-distributors. And then the business itself has a lot of feet on the street themselves. 
to go and call on some of the bigger accounts, even though they're not chained. And, and that may not happen in the US. So you've got to look at the structures and then the accompanying technology that follows that. And I think you you raise a really good point there, which is that from I've seen the entire B2B market go through a quite significant shift in mentality over the last few years, in particular due to COVID, which is that we've moved from a purely transactional mindset to now we can use B2B e-commerce channels as a true, genuine customer acquisition channel, and we can use it as a long-tail organic search channel, whereas before, most B2B platforms were just portals, meaning you had to authenticate before you could even engage with that digital channel at all. You had to log in to even see your catalog, to see your pricing, to see the products, to see anything. You had to log in. You had to authenticate. You had to have an account. And now what we're seeing is we're seeing businesses realize, particularly in not as developed markets, that the B2B e-commerce channel can actually be for customer acquisition and it can actually be for a genuine marketing channel. So what I'm seeing, and I'd love to know whether you are seeing the same evolution of the channel, is that now a lot more B2B brands are allowing customers to create an account through that B2B e-commerce website, give minimal amount of details. Maybe when they first sign up, they can only pay by business credit card or whatever it might be. They don't necessarily, they're not necessarily able to buy an account. They maybe have a base catalog. Okay, we only have this subset of products for new customers that sign up until they actually are on account with us. They can only see a subset of our catalog products. They see the most expensive pricing we offer. They do not get any preferential discounts apart from the standard trade discount that we would offer any trade customer. And then from there, that becomes a sales lead for the sales team to then follow up on and say, okay, let's find out more about this customer. Let's see whether they whether they need some things that weren't available through the standard catalog. And let's see whether they qualify for some more bespoke or tiered pricing. And so I'm seeing B2B really... B2B businesses are recognizing, hey, we have to be represented in Google. If we just have a portal that you have to authenticate through and nobody can see it and it's behind a robot's TXT file, Google's never going to index all that beautiful content and all that product information, catalog information. We really need to be represented out there because so many of those searches for by B2B buyers are now originating online, as you said. Yes. I think a lot of them just start there and they go and say, what do I want and where am I going to look first for it? I was looking at a stat actually earlier this week, and it said, what does the B2B buyer in 2023 look for? And what are the top four sort of influencing decisions that they have? And the top one was 60% go to the supplier's website. Okay, So 60% of them are going there, followed by attending webinars hosted by the suppliers. And you look at some of the new ways we're engaging with people. They'll conduct research on the supplier and they'll go and have a look. And I think what we've also got to remember in this, Jason, is how that B2B buyer is changing in their age. A lot of those sort of B2B buyers that are coming through right now are 25 to 40. They've grown up native with a lot of this technology. They don't have to be called on all the time. And it's really a plural. It's just one of the methods that we can use to call on them. So we can go and say, yeah, I've got the e-commerce. I will do for certain things where I need to have deeper discussions, more complex discussions. I'll go in person. I made a video conferencing and sometimes I'll use the phone. But it's really about having a range of options to get to those buyers. 
that that sort of make those calls the most effective and the most effective use of time. And I think also the realization that depending on the product set, that's another big one specifically for us, because when you look at your the products you sell and if they're a lot more technical or have additional features and bullets, a 30-minute in-person meeting with a buyer, you just can't get all that information across. It's, it's now impossible to effectively get information across about 10 different products in that time. And that's where B2B platforms can really play a role. I think one of the interesting things you talk about this whole area of demand generation, we piloted and have since implemented in India live shopping. And initially I was like totally skeptical at first. I was like, Dean, this is DDC stuff you're doing here. And my team at the time came to me and said, no, listen, we want to give this a try. And I was like, I'm really not sure because everybody's going live streaming. It's China. You and I in the same, listen to these same circles all the time. And in actual fact, it ended up being utterly a masterstroke because here was 1,200 distributors who we'd sit there and we'd demonstrate a product to them and they'd sit there and we'd, the guy would sit there and do it and they'd be sitting on their phones watching this. And then we'd say, buy now. And the distributors would get a discount for an hour or two or the rest of the day on the platform. And that's where you, uh, you can use it just to solve complex problems and generate a lot of demand because we're sitting there and going, that's how we market because we have to explain products. It's not just a it's not just a sort of static web page where somebody can go on and read information. So I think it's moved quite a bit from that point of view, is that if you consider e-commerce is about and B2B e-commerce, don't see it as it's just a transaction. Okay. Nobody's interested in just a transaction anymore. They're interested in engagement and they're interested in learning more. That's why they're going on. That's why they're going to those websites to, to actually research your products and do it. So do that. Give it give, give them that type of information. And what we're sort of looking to do is merge those tools. So large companies might have an iPad with a showpad type sales engagement tool and plug that content also into your B2B platform. So you can say to your buyer, hey, I've seen it. You've seen I've showed it to you. You can go and get it there. You can self-serve whenever you want. And what that starts to do is one is it ups the customer experience that you want to create for that buyer. But it also, in a way, le lets you get more time on the street. A lot of businesses talk about feet on the street and what sort of time in the day. And we're no different. So at least if they can self-serve, he's not picking up the phone and you're the man's pulling up on the side of the road and going, yeah, answer questions for 10 minutes. It's on the side, he can go and self-serve. I think there, there's that sort of movement to more trans, more sales engagement-led B2B. Man, you bring up some, such amazing points there and a whole bunch of things leap to mind. One is outreach at scale, right? And communication yeah. at scale. I think what B2B brands are realizing is the digital tooling allows them to do outreach at scale and comms at scale. And, you know, instead of doing an individual demo to each individual distributor or retailer or wholesaler, or even those B2B end customers, instead of trying to get around to every one of them, to show them this new thing and show it in action and how it works and how amazing it is and what the new features are, we can do this at scale through live shopping, right? So they yeah. don't, and the great thing about live shopping is even if they don't purchase there and then, you are still effectively doing a live demo of a product. And so therefore you are getting information about that product into their hands 
at scale, and you would far rather that information be coming from you, be coming from you, as opposed to those wholesalers, those distributors, those massive retailers trying to go and get that information from other retailers. Like for example, I know that Home Depot, Lowe's, Miter Ten, they're all putting out hundreds of videos about their products. They're putting yeah. out videos about brands. They're putting out videos about product. They're putting about out videos about how to build something using a specific product or using a specific tool. The last thing you want is your wholesalers and your B2B buyers going to a YouTube video by Home Depot about this product that you've released. You don't want them going to your other B2B buyers. You want them coming direct to you for that information. And yeah. so historically, that information was dominated by the big retailers because they had the revenue and the scale and the access to the customer that was going to be buying those products to justify the investment in content. But now B2Bs have the ability to distribute that content at scale like they couldn't do before. Correct. I think if you look at it, you got the retailers doing it, but then there's also um, YouTube, a double-edged sword. Sometimes there's people explaining how to use things, but sometimes they don't explain how to use it properly. And then they can represent your brand in a way that you don't want it to represent it. One of the interesting ones that, are, that I've seen recently, which for some of your, view, your viewers and listeners to this podcast is Salon Centric. It's owned by L'Oreal and it's basically their platform for hair salons and beauty salons. And you can literally go on there and sign up to classes where they will tell you how to use their products. And they've got, it's a digital live inter interactive sort of one then they'll do ones which are look and learn so you don't need to interact then there'll be hands-in ones where you can actually go and set it up and people can register to go to a physical one so i think there's all these different executions that people are using this for to get the message and communicate across and i think that's where that where a b2b vision like that becomes really powerful because you think of a, a brand like l'oreal helping the salon owners to do better business, helping them to make sure that their products really work well and answering questions at a time that's convenient for the business and for the business owners. To do that is, is really a powerful way of going. And I think the other thing also is that gets overlooked a little bit in this B2B discussion as it relates to the buyer of the products. I think that the digital tooling that we have nowadays to enable field sales reps, SDRs, BDMs, AEs to do their job better, faster, easier, and with less admin effort. I think that oftentimes gets overlooked too because maybe the discussion centers on even getting those team members on board with digital in the first place because maybe they feel like those digital channels are a threat to their livelihood, to their position in the business. And oftentimes I see that when businesses implement e-com for the first time, that they go, oh, hang on a second. Is the goal to replace us? Is the goal to ultimately get rid of us and move to all digital channels? No, I, I haven't seen that yet with any of my B2B merchant customers. Not a single one of them is it their goal to replace their sales teams with digital technologies. It's about how can we augment them? How can we enable them? And how can we allow them to scale without, in, in some places and in some markets and in some countries, you could never scale. You know, no matter how much money you threw at it, you could literally never scale to the point where you could service every single B2B buyer in person. There's just no way you could do it. And so I think it's about having these discussions early and often in the business about the overall strategy of your go-to-market and saying, look, 
there's a place in our organization and there will always be for sales people, whatever you call them and whatever specific role they hold, there's always a place for those people in our organization because there is certain institutional knowledge and relationship building capability and prospecting capability. There's certain skills that are just so human in nature and really require a person to be there in person. You can never get away from that fully. But I think it's about how do we enable them in such a way that they feel empowered as opposed to threatened. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at it and you say, what are the capabilities that people need, and these are sellers and sellers management, what you're looking at is things like sales opportunities. How do I increase the size of your business? So that rep, he has been doing a lot of placing orders that's taking up a lot of his time. But how can you move him to a stage where he's looking for new opportunities? He's looking for new ways to service that customer. And when we started this originally, we broke up that relationship into a couple of different areas that they, they start, which is really about relationship and network building, account planning, prospecting. The technology is not going to take away from that. And then you've got the managing of resource management, the opportunity management, and then how do you deliver exactly what the customer wants? So really, I think it's about saying to those team members, how can we augment your approach rather than seeing it as a replacing? I, when I talk about technology with our teams, talk about that it's either customer or consumer focused, business led and technology enabled. The technology is not here to replace you. It's here to enable you to work more effectively in what you're doing every single day. But we'll do time and motion studies with our teams and go and say, of those customer-facing sales interactions that we have, how much time do you spend across customer-facing sales interactions where you're really trying to sell versus identifying opportunities versus selling preparation versus post-sales customer service versus admin, versus travel. And it wouldn't surprise me in a lot of businesses that you spend sort of 25% of your time as a sales rep doing admin and post-sales customer service, okay? They don't want to be doing that. That's it's not, It doesn't end up in more sales for them. It, so what you're really trying to do is free them up to do more customer-facing sales interactions, which relieves some of that that's non-sales related activities, if you would, and transitions that to B2B platform to do that hard work for you. Which So it makes a, an account manager's job actually easier. It makes the customer happy because he can get that whenever he wants to, in a way that he wants to, in a way that's not always about selling, selling, selling. I think we have this impression that all B2B buyers want to be sold to. They don't. They actually don't want to a hard sell all the time. They want to be able to access at a time in a space that's convenient to them for their needs and also have a discussion with somebody else while they're doing that. Because you know, in a larger organization or with it, when there's more than 10 of you in a company, you're going to have a discussion with somebody else about the product. So you'll pull them over to the website and go and say, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Should we get this? Should we get that? And the more businesses move towards that, it frees up selling time for customer-facing sales interactions rather than data entry, creating reports and admin tasks. And I think you make a very good point, which is that 
you want to be the vector. You want to be the font of all knowledge around your product because yeah. there's, for example, in your space, there's a lot of official tool review reviewers slash influencers that all they do, their entire channel is about reviewing tools. And what, you know, and this is from, might be from every single brand on the bloody planet. It could be Ryobi, it could be bloody anybody, right? Mm -hmm. And so you lose control of the narrative around your own product. If they go and they're going, okay, we're considering buying this at scale and potentially reselling it, whatever, let's go and let's go straight to YouTube and let's see what the reviews are. Now, the problem with that is that the reviews may not be fair. They may not be reasonable. They may not, a lot of these reviews, they are sponsored. And so therefore they will give weight to more weight and more detail to the sponsored products than the non-sponsored products. And so if you, unless you're sponsoring every single tool influencer yeah. out there on the planet, you may not be shown in a favorable light versus your competitors. And so yeah. the reality is the more that you can control end-to-end -end buying journey right from consideration, right through to purchase and right through to post-purchase experience, the more that you can own that entire journey, the better off you will be as a brand because you're being represented properly. You are... You, you are lowering the cognitive requirement, the cognitive load on the part of the buyer, and you're also allowing them to get that information at a time that is convenient to them as it relates to that entire purchase journey. So in other words, if they're going, look, okay, I'm, I'm finished for the day. It's seven o'clock at night. I'm sitting at home on my iPad, and I now need to buy, make some purchasing decisions. You don't want them to have to go to find out about your, you don't want them to have to go to YouTube first where it may alter their buying decision during that buying journey. They might be logged into your website to make the B2B purchase at the same time they're logged into YouTube. And if they can get all the information right there on your website without actually having to go to YouTube in the first place, or even if your content is hosted on YouTube on your own channel, but that's embedded in your B2B buyer's journey, then they never have to leave that linear purchasing experience. They never have to leave that experience to go get information somewhere else to inform the decision. Absolutely. And I think what you touched on there is a couple of key differences between B2B e-commerce and B2C e-commerce. And I know a couple of your listeners would be playing in both of these spaces or at least one of them. And really, there's a couple of real big differences, which mean that you actually want to control that message and you want to control it a lot more. And then what these sort of are is, first and foremost, the purchasing process in a B2B environment is a lot longer. It normally takes a lot longer to make a decision. Yes. Uh, and so there's this sort of, I call it the, I saw this on Google and uh, Google did a piece of research on selling and how people buy online. And it was quite interesting because they called it the information and the evaluation loop. And I think it captures so nicely that people go and search for information, they evaluate it, and it's this loop and iteration to get back to what I want. And in, in B2B products and B2B purchasing, that, that information and evaluation loop can take quite a long time to make sure that you're not making the wrong decision. And the reason for that is in B2B purchasing, the risk is a lot higher. If I go and purchase something for $20 and it doesn't work, well, okay, it's okay. But if I'm putting a $2,000 drill and then I'm putting in a hand of somebody who's working on a, on a big building on it, the risk magnifies and magnifies quite a bit. So you don't want that message controlled by a sponsored influencer who doesn't quite know what you intended that tool to do and has perhaps other reasons that he's pushing out other brands. The other one is that 
often that decision making is by committee, particularly in larger businesses. Business to B2B purchasing is made by committee. It would be very seldom in larger businesses that one person has the sole responsibility for doing that. So you being able to provide realistic factual content to those guys helps that decision making in that committee to be a lot more succinct and better. And that's one of the reasons why you do need to control this versus a sort of B2C world where that decision making is inevitably an individual. It's you and I going there and saying, oh, I saw this on TikTok, I saw it on YouTube, I'm buying it. But if I'm the procurement guy and I go, I saw this on TikTok, I bought it and it goes wrong, that's my career at risk there because my my managers are going to look at me and go, how are you really thinking through this? So being able to control those and being very clear on that message is one of the reasons why B2B can be so powerful as a platform for businesses rather than just going EDI and I'm not going to do B2B. I think it's EDI and B2B. I very much think that they're complementary rather than one's going to replace the other entirely. And I think you make a very good point and we're coming to the end of our time together and I'll finish off with this key question. I think that what we're seeing is the invasion of the entire B2B commerce journey with traditionally B2C, D2C technology tools and uh, augmentation. Even as of a few years ago, many B2Bs, they didn't even know what a PIM system, a product information management platform was. They had no idea. They just used their ERP and that was it. It It did everything for them. Same with CDPs and marketing automation platforms and everything. Outbound comms to, to customers in the B2B world were usually sent by their sales reps and to a broadcast list out of, out of whatever email program they used. And even digital catalogs and PDFs were just attached to emails that the sales reps sent out. Now, we're seeing that a lot of these tools that were originally built for B2C, D2C, we're seeing those increasingly being adopted by B2Bs because we're trying to create a more B2C-like customer journey in B2B. And so that tooling that was really only considered effective in the B2C world, now we're seeing actually this is becoming super mission critical in B2B as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. So content is a base standard. And I think there's even more content required in a B2B world than in in a sort of B2C world. And that may sound strange for everybody coming from people like ourselves, but there's more content. And that's because fundamentally there's a big difference, which is it's about information, education, and demonstration. Show me how these products work. Show me what they do. Provide me all the information so I can make a correct decision. So they're very content heavy. They also, you also want to give options. So... You know, what we're seeing a lot of is things like buy now, pay laters or seller-based financing. Your sort of climate type idea of buy now, pay later is taking the B2C world by storm, but it's really taking the B2B world by storm now. So there's, so literally anybody can go on and do that and you can do invoice discounting, seller-based financing, all different methods of payments. So the payments world on B2B is actually rocketed and it's learned a lot of the lessons from b2c and then i think one of one of the other ones that that i'm seeing a lot more of in the last year or so is the evolution of marketplaces into the b2b world that's another one which has just absolutely exploded where people are looking at a marketplace model which has always been very a b2c model 
to solve business challenges for themselves. And I think there are various examples that I've seen where I've seen one of the ones I was talking to somebody else the other day about was a marketplace I saw, and that's gone from zero to $32 billion of GMV just on business B2B customers in three years. It's phenomenal numbers. I recently saw a big article in Reuters about Amazon and how much they're going to invest in Europe in particular for B2B commerce on the marketplace. So Amazon business, they're going to be putting tens of millions of dollars in infrastructure, marketing, logistics. They are going to actively court B2B sellers uh, in Europe because they saw an explosion of B2B demand in Europe during COVID. And they know that they're severely underserved in multiple categories in Europe as a result. So they're targeting that. I think you make a very good point. We could probably talk for another two hours just about B2B marketplaces. Alone. And I, look, I really appreciate your time. You have covered so much great ground. You're so eloquent and so experienced in this space. I'd love to get you back on again soon and talk about a whole bunch more topics around B2B commerce. And I just so appreciate you sharing from your deep pool of experience because a lot of these, especially these big brands like, like Black & Decker at that scale, they oftentimes they don't want their staff, they don't want their teams talking anything about what they do as a business. And I appreciate you being so open, so transparent, opening the kimono so that people can actually learn from your experience. But as we come to a, the close of our time together, I'd love to turn the microphone over to you. And I would love for you to ask me one question, any question you like, can be personal, can be professional, your personal, professional, whatever you like. So what is your question for me today? Dan McElwee. I think, thanks, Jason. I think, thanks for having me on. It's been a really interesting chat. I think the, the biggest question I have for you is what do you think the biggest opportunity in B2B commerce is going to be in the next two years? Look, I, I've been asked a similar question, but not exactly that way before. And I'll answer it. I'll answer it with a similar response only because I think this is an opportunity that's still being ignored so strongly. I think that many more D2C brands of today, manufacturers that are selling directly only to end consumers today, especially as the market continues to contract, I think they are going to realize that getting in front of every single end consumer is a fait accompli. It's never going to happen. And we even look at Allbirds. We've seen what's happened with Allbirds, probably one of the most famous D2C brands in the world. They have famously shunned wholesale through the life of their brand. They've set up retail stores. They've tried to go into new categories and they are really struggling. I'm seeing almost uh, almost every single quarter, I see how much money Allbirds is losing trying to stick with the D2C play and many other brands are trying to do the same. I think we're going to see a huge percentage of these traditional pure play D2C brands add a B2B channel. They will have no choice. From a CAC perspective and also from a distribution perspective, they will have no choice but to add a very solid and strong B2B commerce channel moving forward because it will allow them to get in front of consumers that they would never be able to get in front of. They say that as a retailer, you should be in front of, you should be wherever your customers are. You should never add friction unnecessarily to their buying journey. And if they're already buying the channel, and they're already there and they're already spending money in that channel. Why shouldn't you just be in that channel, be represented in that channel? And so that's, I think, the biggest change we're going to say see is that D2C has historically been massively resistant to adding B2B channels because they've wanted to own the end-to-end customer journey. They've wanted to own all of the customer data, the customer feedback loops, the direct comms capabilities, the remarketing. They've wanted to own all of that. And I think that in their act of being selfish, because I consider that a very selfish approach and it's a very 
centric approach as opposed to a customer centric approach, I think we're going to see DTC adopt B2B channels over the next couple of years at a rate that we have never seen before. That's my personal opinion based on what I'm seeing in the market. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that because I think not just all the things that we've talked about previously, the benefits that B2B has, it's quite difficult to get, to, to get teams that can go and detail your products to all these large brands and these large retailers. So being able to get that B2B buyer the chance to look at products wherever he wants to, I think it's we've really got to put ourselves in the in the shoes of that B2B buyer and say, how would I want to be serviced rather than looking at I'm only like this or I'm only like that. You can control these customer journeys or structure them in such a way that you show them indicative pricing, you show them MQs, you show them all that kind of information so that they can go and look at that and then they can buy it and then try it. I think that's where a lot of D2Cs, you're, you're right, I think have a huge opportunity just to look at it differently. Completely. Listen, Dean, I so appreciate your time. It has been an absolutely amazing conversation. If people want to follow you, get in touch with you, whatever, is LinkedIn the best place for people to, because I see you put out a ton of content on LinkedIn. Is that the best place for people to follow you and your journey? Absolutely. Yeah. So LinkedIn is always the best place to find me on. I'm usually quite active on there, you're right. Really just trying to share different types of content and just trying to educate people. You're doing a freaking awesome job. That's how you came onto my radar was through your content. So I super, super appreciate your time. And I cannot wait to speak to you again soon because you're an absolute wealth of knowledge and experience in our space. And I'm really trying to put as much B2B knowledge out there as possible because I think the versus D2C, B2C, there's just not as much content being put out around this with institutional knowledge being shared across our industry. So I appreciate your willingness to share. I really do. And I can't wait to speak to you again soon, mate. If you're into B2B commerce and you would like to be a guest on B2B Commerce Corner, simply go to ecommerceedge.net, click on more info, then click on be a guest and fill out your details and we will get back to you straight away.